Michelle. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, Michelle read the text, was our reading today uh, from Luke 17, 5 through 10. We're going to expand that to the beginning of the chapter for the purposes of the sermon. So if you're following along in your Bible, uh, Luke 17, 1 through 10 will be kind of the material for the sermon today. So uh, last week, you know, we had a guest preacher uh, named Sean. It was great to have him here. And so one of my jobs for the week was kind of getting him to and from the places he needed to be where he was speaking other than here. So he was at La Mesa on Monday for a pastor's gathering. And then he was at McMurray on Tuesday uh, for the college chapel there. And so uh, Jenny helped me shuffle him around and Amberly helped me shuffle him around. And we all kind of team effort getting him where he needed to go. So I go to pick him up in La Mesa about five o'clock on Monday, and I pull into the restaurant parking lot where he's meeting a friend of his from Lubbock, and I'm just kind of taking my time, and I'm going to ease in and pick him up and bring him back to Sweetwater so we can get on with our day. And So I open the door of my pickup in the small parking lot, and I accidentally bump the car next to me. And I know y'all have never done that, the perfection in the room. Uh, and so I, I bump the door, and you know that sinking feeling, you're like, oh, I don't have time for this, you know, and so I get out and I look and, you know, there's not anything that I can see. Uh, but then I notice that there's a guy in the car and he looks at me and I, I don't know if I had a smirk on my face because I was wincing. He opens the door and says, what's so funny, man? And I went, oh, boy, this is this is called in psychological terms escalation. Uh, and he he meets me with this anger. And then I noticed there's a guy in the passenger side who's beginning to open the door, and he has no neck. And he's like this. And they come out, and, you know, what's the problem? And he said, why, well, you think it's funny that you hit my car? You know, and, he, and you can imagine the scene. I mean, it just gets more ridiculous on. So his way of dealing with the situation, I just kind of freeze, and I went, oh, man, uh, I really don't want to go out this way, you know. He turns around. I'm not kidding. He turns around to the side of my pickup, and he punches the pickup door as hard as he can and puts a dent in my door, you know, and he's thinking an eye for an eye, buddy. I don't know where you're from. You know, he looks at me and I'm just in shock. I'm like, did that hurt? That looked like it hurt because you just, you know, but he, I think he was a little, he was helped along by some, you know, pharmaceuticals, I think, and was um, not feeling that pain as much. We have this ridiculous situation unfolding before us. And I just remember thinking back as I reflected on it throughout the week, I just realized, you know, I just, I just froze. I was in shock. I was like, I don't know what to do with this guy. Of course, I'm thinking, you know, the old unreformed me would have been just up for the fight, up for the challenge. Be like, y'all can come get me out of jail in La Mesa if you want. Uh, I probably lose a few teeth. I probably get beat up by him and Guido. But hey, I, you know, at least I would save face. And as it was, I was just standing there going, there's no good solution to this. I mean, I could call the police. I could do that. You know, I'm just thinking through like, there's really no good way out of this. And given the sermon material, I uh, I realized the one thing I didn't do in the midst of my frozen state is I never thought to offer this guy a word of grace. I never thought to offer him like a, hey, you look like life's been hard to you lately. Uh, anything I can do for you? You know, I don't know. That never occurred to me. Wouldn't have occurred to me. Um, I never thought to tell the guy, hey, man, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. <laughs> As would never occur to any of us in that situation, probably to you, not to me. And I realize, you know, it's very different. Again, the, the call for forgiveness in the material in Luke is, is different than the encounter with a stranger. But as I reflected more on it, I thought, you know, it's actually easier to forgive strangers sometimes than it is to forgive our brothers and sisters in 
Christ and our literal brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers and that sort of thing. So while it's different in nature, uh, it, it, the principles are the same about the shock that we sometimes feel in the and kind of the uh, just the frozenness we feel in the midst of a situation where we don't know how we're supposed to respond. So Jesus is transitioning from some material where he's telling parables to the Pharisees and the disciples are overhearing. And we talked about one of those a couple of weeks ago. And he's bringing them along the journey of discipleship. And, and now in the beginning of chapter 17, Jesus turns directly to the disciples. And he said, all right, I'm going to tell you guys some things, some ordinary things that y'all should be known for in the world. Right. These are just everyday laissez-faire disciple-making things that should be evidence in your life. And oh, by the way, these Pharisees that claim to be doing all the stuff right, I don't see this stuff in their lives, okay? So it's like, disciples, I want you to be doing this. I see the, I see the Pharisees too, and I know they're not doing it, but trust me, this is what God's family looks like. So he says, scandals are sure to come. Okay, Jesus lives in the real world too. Scandals are sure to come. We know scandals are out there. I love it. Even the Greek is so strong in the word scandalon. It's like that we that stuff is not new and it never goes away. Scandals are sure to come, but Jesus says, Woe to the person through whom those things come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast into the sea, than it should cause one of these little ones to sin. So it's better to drown in a lake, drown in the ocean, than it is to be one of the people who causes scandal for a little one in the faith or a literal little one, uh, a younger person. Pay attention to yourselves, Jesus says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So, Ordinary things that we should be doing as disciples that we are going to be known for as Christ's ambassadors in the world. Things that the Pharisees so far not doing a great job of. So the first one is just don't be a scandalous person. It makes sense. We would all, yeah, that's easy to understand. Don't be a scandalous person. It always shocks me that the Methodist general rules, now this was for anybody that wanted to be a Methodist, you had to learn the three general rules. And you, this is before they would let you in a Sunday school class. <laughs> before you could come to the meeting, you had to know, you had to learn the general rules. And the first general rule is the same as the Hippocratic Oath. Do no harm. I always thought, like, can't we get more lofty than that? Can't we aspire to a little more than just doing no harm? But the older I get, the more I realize that's pretty profound. Do no harm. That's the first thing. We walk into a room. We, come, we have a friendship. We do whatever. Do no harm. You can make a lot of hay in the kingdom of God, doing no harm. Now, of course, there's two more rules, which are about doing all the good that you can and that sort of thing, but the first one is do no harm. Jesus is saying there are scandals all around us, and we don't want to be the people who look look at us and say, gosh, if that's what Christianity is like, old Strebeck, I, I maybe want to rethink this thing. You know, Buddhism sounds pretty good. So do no harm is a simple instruction. The second one, pay attention to yourselves. This one's kind of, Interesting to hear. Pay attention to yourselves, right? Take some inventory. It's like the Pharisees are not self-aware. They, they have deceived themselves such. They think they're pleasing God, and all the while, they're not. So pay attention. 
Pay attention to your heart. Pay attention to your soul. Pay attention to your strength. Pay attention to your mind, your thoughts. Number three, ordinary things. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, this is a lot of fun. Uh, I know you guys will like leave church today and be like, I never thought of myself, part of my vocation as a rebuker. But uh, all of us have been asked to uh, consider being rebukers. And it has everything to do with not letting someone remain estranged from the family of God. Do we love those enough in the family of God that when they're outside of that kinship, when they're, when they're living outside of God's family and they're not experiencing the benefits of being part of the family, do we love them enough to go to them and say, hey, this thing that's keeping you out, you're forgiven. Wake up and, and come home. You know, come back. I, you know, and it's just that deal like the prodigal son, he came to his senses, right? Going, loving someone enough to go to them and invite them to come home, forgiving them. Rebuking. Uh, so it's, it's, it's crazy to think about Jesus asking us to be confrontational. You know, we're, I don't know about you, I'm not very good at being confrontational, in a, at least in a positive, healthy way. Um, so, so he says, be confrontational, right? Love someone enough to confront them when they're estranged from God. Okay, got it. And then, if we're surprised, like Jonah, that people actually repent, forgive them. Wow, dang it. That first part was a little easier. That second part, a little harder. If your brother rep- repents, forgive him. And, he, and if he comes back to you and repents seven times, forgive him seven times. And, ah, dang it. This is hard. We know it's hard. The disciples knew it was hard. It should cause us a little frustration. Now remember, when we talk about forgiveness, we're not going to do the whole anatomy of forgiveness thing today. When we talk about forgiveness, when Jesus is commanding us to forgive, he is not endorsing victims to forgive people that are abusing them. All right, that's not what's happening here. This is not, oh, and if, if someone abuses you, you know, six, six times, seven times, just continue to forgive them. If they come back and say, I'm sorry, just say, oh, no problem. We'll just go back. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying this is a person of strength, uh, just the same kind of strength that it takes to forgive someone. I mean, to confront someone, it's the same kind of strength that it requires to forgive. This is someone holding power who has the ability to welcome someone back into the family who's exercising that forgiveness. That's what the kind of forgiveness that Jesus is talking about. How many times, even in the church, have we allowed unforgiveness to take our joy away, to make us frustrated in the work that we do, to draw lines that we say we're never crossing again in the midst of our own congregations? Entire churches, entire denominations have started sometimes because we were un- unwilling to forgive each other. Unforgiveness, when we find it, is usually a sign of a lack of being forgiven by Christ. If we don't know that we're forgiven, if we don't rehearse that we're forgiven, if we don't meditate on the reality of Christ's forgiveness, it will be really impossible for us to be the kind of people who extend forgiveness. So we meditate on God's mercy towards us. Forgiveness is a precious commodity, in fact. But it is also given without limit in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying the Pharisees live like forgiveness and mercy are a scarcity, like a scarce resource. And Jesus is saying, look, God's mercy and love for you is limitless. 
And that's the well from which you draw to forgive others. Okay, so it makes sense now when we get to verse 5. What do the disciples say? Lord, increase our faith. (laughs) Just like me and you, they're going, that sounds really hard. That stuff is ordinary, I got you, but it sounds really tough. I don't want to be confrontational for the sake of love, and I don't want to forgive somebody. That sounds really difficult. So, Jesus, can you increase our faith? You know, is there something you can do? Can you turn up the burner here? Is there a way for you to increase the fuel intake on our soul so we can burn a little hotter? I don't know. What is it? Is there a switch you can flip, Lord? Is there something you can do? Because this seems really impossible. Proper response. And Jesus says, paraphrase, don't beat yourselves up too bad. It's like, you guys have faith. Look at yourselves. Look at what you've done. Look at what life you left and the life that you're living now. You've got a solid measure of faith. Just look at your lives. Uh, N.T. Wright summarizes and comments on it this way and says, what you need is not big faith, but what you need is just a little faith and a big God. It's not, it's not like we're having a faith competition here. In this case, at least up to this point in Luke's gospel, this is only the fifth time, no, excuse me, the sixth time that the noun faith has occurred. The previous five times have been people usually outside the faith community, and it's just like Jesus notices it when he sees it. You know, remember the guys that lower their friend down through the roof when he needs healing, and Jesus goes, hey, now that's faith. Like, your faith has made you well. He recognizes the kind of faith. So you've got it in this case, or you don't. And he says, if you had faith, just a tiny faith. You know, the mustard seed is the analogy Whatever the smallest seed you can imagine. I don't know if you've ever planted carrots, tiny, tiny little seeds. If you have faith as the size of a carrot seed, then you you could say to this oak tree, hey, uh, be uprooted and now be planted over in the sea. And we look at that and go, that never works. Have you ever tried to uproot a plant and plant it somewhere else, just rip it up by the roots? That never works. The plant can't survive. It's impossible. Jesus says, yeah, the impossible becomes possible when you have faith. In the right God. All right. But how do we have faith? Like, how does that work? How do we know? What does faith look like? And how do we continue in faith? And how does this work? So Jesus tells a parable. And this parable is a a little tough to understand, a little confusing. But the summary of this parable is, finally, that the hard work that we do for God does not put God in debt to us. The hard work that we do for God does not put God in debt to us. There's, a, there's an economy of humility that situates up us excuse me, with proper faith. Now this parable that Michelle read for us, it was a common master-servant scenario in the first century BCE. It's a lot more like So this is your average landowner. This is not the super wealthy or the super poor. This is your average middle class agrarian landowner and their one hired hand. That's kind of what we're meant. That's the most common picture of farming in this world. And so Luke's using this parable. and This is not the first time he's used it. This relationship, the master and the servant. So this is the guy that owns a little land. He needs one hired hand to help him do it. So his family provides for the hired hand and his family to have a home in their household, in their greater household. So this is this is that hired hand that was always part of the family, right? And so there's that connection there. 
This is not someone who's bought or traded as a slave who has no choice in the matter. This is someone who situated themselves in the, in the household of the landowner for their own welfare, and they've entrusted their whole life and their family's life to the landowner and his life. So when we see the word slave or servant, depending on what translation you're reading, this is not equal to uh, someone with no choice who's a traded commodity, but the slave or the servant in this case is someone who has cast their lot with the master. They said, I trust you, master, uh, to be able to provide for me if I work my honest job, and so I'm, tr- I'm entrusting myself to you. I'm casting my lot with you. And then there's another word in here that, that is an adjective that modifies the word slave that kind of makes us go, gosh, why would we say that? I thought Jesus wanted us to feel okay about ourselves. And it's the word unworthy, and depending on what translation you read. Um, but unworthy has nothing to do here with intrinsic value. Jesus is not saying you're not worth anything. You should just go say, oh, don't worry, I'm just an unworthy slave. Like, woe is me. I'm a terrible, you know, whatever. And and but But thank goodness God loves me, and he can make something out of this miserable, terrible, horrible life. Now, that's not what Jesus is endorsing, right? Does Jesus want us to think of ourselves that way? No, he already told us to pay attention to ourselves, to take inventory, the glory of God, fully on display, human beings, you and I. Rather, the word unworthy is an economic term. It means nothing further is owed to me. So if I am your unworthy slave, that means you don't owe me anything else, further than what we've already agreed on, right? If, if this side of the room is an unworthy slave to this side of the room, it means they don't owe y'all anything. And it could be flipped the other way. That's, that's what it is. It's an economic language. And so you'll see the word in verse 9. Does the master thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Again, thanks here is not, you know, we think thanks. We think like, a, hey, thanks for doing that. Or the hallmark thank you card. Uh, we think social politeness, right? You did something for me, I'm going to send you a thank you. Thank you for doing that for me. But the master here, if he were to tell the servant thanks in this way, he would not be being polite and he would not be uh, expressing gratitude. Rather, he would be placing himself in undue debt to the servant. It would be like the servant looking to kind of have his boss owe him something a little extra, a little extra than what they'd agreed to, than the terms of the deal. It's equal to, hey, I'm the master, but now I owe you one, servant. And so that's, that's what it would be. That's the whole thank you. You know, if he said thanks, that's how he would be saying thanks. Again, it's an economic exchange, not a uh, feeling or a, um, a sense of gratitude. It would be an indebting himself to the slave to the servant in a way that just wouldn't work. And so Jesus is saying, look, when you finish the work that you've already agreed to do, we should say, hey, we've only done what was asked of us. We are unworthy servants. We are servants. You don't owe us anything else, God. We're not trying to put ourselves, we're not trying to put you in debt to us. Here we are. <clears throat> uh, this Just this past week, I uh, I sent one of our kids' teachers an email. And uh, she had been given updates on you know the class and the situation and different things and was helping our kid through something and I said hey thank you so much for the the obvious joy that you have for teaching and for sharing that with the kids of our Sweetwater community 
And she sent me a note back a couple days later. And she said, thank you for taking the time to send that message. This is my calling. And it's an honor to have the opportunity to influence kids in a positive way. Isn't that a great response? Is that exactly what Jesus is saying? Her response was, it's my calling. I don't do it. I don't owe you a favor. I don't, you know, I'm not putting myself in debt to you. I'm doing my job. And it's a calling and I love it. And it's a great opportunity. Beautiful response. And I think very similar to what Christ is trying to say. Because here's the deal. The Pharisees, again, back in the picture, what are they doing? They're living and serving and loving God in public. And they're thinking, oh, God, oh, good old boy, God, he owes me a thing or two. Because look at all the stuff we've done. Look at the things that we have built. Look at what we, and then look at those other poor people over there. Those pagans, those whatever. But us, we've done it upright. And God, man, it's sure nice to go to bed at night knowing that God owes me a favor. <laughs> you know, it, it sounds ridiculous, but that's how they're living their life. And so, again, Jesus is definitely connecting this parable, this idea, back to a parable that he just told a few chapters back. And you'll remember uh, the parable of the two sons, right? There was a man with two sons. You remember the first one? We call him the prodigal son. Right? He, he took his inheritance up front and he wandered away. He squandered his inheritance on destitute living. And he wakes up one day, comes to his senses. He comes home knowing that the father, that there are hopefully some welcome arms. At least he could be a slave in the father's house. He comes home. He's very surprised because the father spares no expense. Right? He throws the cloak on him. He puts the ring on his finger. He goes through the whole deal and he throws a party. My son has come home, and let's gather around. But Jesus is connecting this parable to the end of that story where we meet the older son. Remember, there were two sons. And what does the older son say? He doesn't come to the party. The father goes out to him to engage him, say, why are you living outside of the community of grace? And he says, all these years, I have worked like a slave for you. All these years I have worked like a slave for you. And never one time did you give me so much as a goat to celebrate with my friends. And meanwhile, this other son of yours, he comes home and you forgive him. You spare no expense and you kill the fatted calf. And so what does the father then say to the son in his fury and in his anger? He says, my son, did you not know? Everything that I have is yours. Everything that I have also belongs to you. But we had to celebrate because your son, your your brother, he was lost and he's come home. He was dead and he's alive. This parable, as we're trying to find faith, and trying to figure out how to live these ordinary ways, this parable really, really hits the older son in me. And it's a great reminder for me of why we do the things that we do, why we live the life that we live in the kingdom of God. And lest I become again the older son that says, God, every day I work like a slave for you, right? And not so much as whatever. And can you not hear the father's voice saying to all of us, 
my son, my daughter. Don't forget, everything that I have is already yours. Everything I have is already yours. In the name of the Father and the Son.